just haven't asked me anything today, so this is just sort of a catch-up day. I was out of town all this week, so I didn't have, I kind of planned this week for no lesson, because I didn't, I was in Atlanta all week, and I didn't want to have to be worried about planning something while I was away. So we can just sort of have some open uh, questions on other topics, other theology, uh, religions, cults, or things where I can pretend to know answers. And if I don't, I'll just tell you. I don't know anything about that. It's yeah. interesting to see the leadership education of Christianity and the seminaries and how they've changed through the years. Mm. So are you talking about, like, kind of some of the shifts in modernism versus right. Fundam- right. fundamentalism and all of that? What's the difference between those? Are you going to, do you know, Steve? Can you, <laughs> well, can you educate me? Right. All right. Is that something you guys want to talk about? We can, we can talk about that. All right. So let's just use that. Let's use the seminaries as kind of a starting point. That's an interesting way of doing it. So where I went to school was Talbot. And that is part of Biola. It's down in La Mirada. It's on the border of L.A. County and Orange County. And then up here in, in our land, we have uh, Fuller over in Pasadena, right? Uh-huh. And then we've got an APU. We've got the Haggard Seminary. What's it called? Haggard. And then we have Claremont, right? We have Claremont Seminary or School of Theology. Master's Seminary, Master's College. Let me get a new, let me get a new pen here. All right, so this is a good start. So, when we think about all these different seminaries and you know what are their distinctives, a lot of it comes from. Well, first of all, these are all Protestant schools. So they're all different Protestant. They all represent different streams of Protestant theology. APU, who knows what the theological background of APU is? What's that history? Wesleyan. Wesleyan. What's another word for Wesleyan? Methodist. And who, are, who founded the Methodists? Who knows? The Wesley brothers, right? Yes. This is, this is not a trick question. Uh, so Charles and John Wesley, they wrote some of our hymns. What's the background of Biola? Who knows what that tradition is? Yes. Yes. The Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Yes, it's an acronym for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Wow. Uh, started in downtown L.A. That's where my, my mother and father-in-law went to it when it was in downtown L.A. Uh, what, what's the background? We call this uh, fundamentalism. So the, this is the fundamentalist tradition, and uh, we'll talk about what that is in a minute. Uh, the Masters, who founded the Masters College? Does anyone know? John MacArthur. And it is what we would call a Reformed Baptist. Now, who is a, does anyone know a very famous 19th century Reformed Baptist? That's close. Uh, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was 
a British minister, I think he was in London, that he would be in the Reformed Baptist tradition. All right, Fuller. What, what's their tradition? What do they come out of? Does anyone know? Presbyterian, yeah. So these are more what I call progressive evangelicals. They would still call themselves evangelicals, but they are defining certain doctrines a little differently than we would. So now Claremont. What, what's the background of Claremont? Does anyone know what that... Yeah, it's, it started out as congregational... But kind of today, they're, they're definitely on the more liberal end of, of theology, and they promote a view called open theism. That's kind of a big thing over there, which we can talk about. So anyways, what I want you to see here is just even in our general area of the diversity of schools that and seminaries that are around us, and but each of them has their own tradition behind them. So let's talk a little bit right now about the 20th century, which is a very interesting time in our history. Um, if you want to do some research on this, um, start like kind of from the post Civil War era up through about. The 1920s. So there was a controversy in this time period where there was the, well, the rise of, we'll call it um, rationalism or empiricism. And this was an era in our history of the church where um, w- there was much more focus on what parts of the Bible were supernaturally plausible. And there was a, a much conversation in the academic realm of how to think about these accounts, these rather primitive accounts in Scripture of miracles, things like the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, how do we think about th- events like um, the parting of the Red Sea or the turning water into wine? How, how, how can we think about this? Because if we think about the, the, what happened maybe a couple or 300 years before this, it begins the rise of scientism, the rise of modern science. And that was really birthed out of the Christian worldview but over time became its own worldview of just whatever it seems reasonable, rational, or another word for this is naturalism, which is really the worldview that was born out of this, where everything must be explained in, by the laws of nature, the laws of physics, if you will. Okay, So when we think about the laws of physics... I can't compute how the resurrection or the virgin birth fits within the laws of physics. Are you with me? So this was the great conversation of this era is this was now penetrating into the local church and it was now penetrating into the seminaries where young men were going to be trained. 
And there came a division in the road in the early 1900s. And think of the post-Civil War was also the, the, the time of the great evangelist of Moody, right? Traveling the country and presenting the gospel. And so this is the time where we see a divergence of two traditions rising out of this. We see um, what's called modernism and fundamentalism. For the first time, you could have Presbyterians. Now, historically, up until this point, a Presbyterian was simply a Scottish Christian. Okay? It was a, you were a Christian from Scotland. That's what a Presbyterian was. But now, for the first time, you could have modernist Presbyterians or more liberal Presbyterians, or you could have fundamentalist Presbyterians or more conservative Presbyterians. Are you with me? So this is where we get much division in the church with many of these denominations. And so this is why we have the the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA, are Presbyterians that are more in the modernist stream of Christianity. But then we have the PCA, which is the Presbyterian Church of America, which is more in the fundamentalist tradition. It's more conservative. So these would say we're more skeptical of the miraculous, but we see deep value in Scripture, in the ethics, in the morals, in the, the of, of teachings of Jesus. But we're more skeptical about issues related to the virgin birth or even the resurrection at times. And the fundamentalist said, oh, no, there are certain fundamentals you have to have in place in order to be a Christian. And much was made of the virgin birth as being one of those flagship issues of one of the defining principles of fundamentalism was actually the virgin birth. So if you've ever heard of a book called The Fundamentals, it was a book a series of books by Christian scholars who identified with the fundamentalist stream of Christianity. And um, they were exploring various topics, science and theology and what we now call psychology and education of what is the fundamentals that you must believe as a distinctly Christian worldview on these issues. And those were published around the turn of the of the 20th century. And it was financed by the same people who founded Biola. It was the brothers uh, Lyman Stewart and his brother, somebody else, Stewart. And they were the owners of Union Oil. And they put their Union Oil money into writing and publishing these books, which was a very costly endeavor at that time, and to starting Biola. And the whole Bible college movement, of which we get Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, Biola University, Messiah College, all of these great Christian colleges, if you notice their founding dates are in this range. And it's because they were a reaction to modernism. Where can we send our young people to get a proper education? Because 
the, the traditional universities had all bought into modernism. Princeton had become a, the leading light in the modernist movement. And so what had been the premier seminary to go to on the East Coast was Princeton. It's the seminary of Hodge and Warfield. It was a leading light of academic integrity. But then through this process, Princeton flipped over here. And it became a modernist seminary. And so the question is, is where are we going to send our young people? Because academia has been siphoned off to the modernists. And so the Bible college movement grew out of this concern. And fundamentalism took root across every denomination. And so this is why there are different kinds of Methodists, different kinds of Lutherans. There are Lutherans that are in the more modernist tradition, and there are Lutherans that are in the more fundamentalist tradition. There are Baptists in the more modernist tradition, and there are Baptists more in the fundamentalist tradition. So this, is, this goes across denominational lines. This is, in a nutshell, the great transition that happened culturally for Christians. So what happened is that Christians went from being in the highest levels of academia, being on the front edge of being contributors to the conversation at places like Princeton. And then they got pushed underground because of the rise of fundamentalism. So if you were going to still hold to a belief in the supernatural, you were probably not going to keep your position at Princeton or some other similar uh, situation. So Biola and Wheaton and Moody, and I think there's about 100 colleges, Bible colleges that were started in this time period. It's a very important time period to understand in the history of American Christianity, is to understand the shift that happened. And so we built up culturally, the cultural impact of that was that Christians became more fearful of the culture. And we withdrew from the universities. And we stopped sending our young people to the universities. And we became to the point of uh, we're going to have our own Christian kind of counterculture, right? And so I think that part of the fruit that we're seeing now, quite honestly, in the chaos in a lot of the universities, is here we are 100 years later, and now God is just completely absent from many of these things. And so when we think about these different seminaries, Claremont is one that went more in the modernist tradition. It, it, that was more of the route that they took. Um, when we think about um, Fuller, I would say they're kind of trying to straddle that fence in between. And there's one, in particular, there's one doctrine that makes a difference here. And this is the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture. The doctrine of inerrancy, if you go on the Fuller website, you can read their extended uh, definition and discussion of what they mean by the inerrancy of Scripture. And they are, they're willing 
to kind of nuance that conversation a little di- bit differently than my, my colleagues at Talbot and Biola. And um, this controversy was really um, crystallized in the 1980s, the early 80s. There was a meeting of many North American and a few British uh, Protestant scholars that hammered out a document called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And this became the defining document, the, the, the defining conversation for f- fundamentalism. And it is part of the doctrinal statement of the ministry that I work for. We all have to sign, all volunteers and staff people have to sign off both on our ministry statement and on the Chicago Statement for Biblical Inerrancy. And it is really a fruit of this fundamentalist movement. And this became part of the ethos of Talbot and Biola. It became part of the ethos of Master's College. But Fuller, they frame up the doctrine of inerrancy a little, a little differently. And so this would obviously influence then how you go about the conversation on certain key doctrines, even on, um, they have a big school of psychology there. That's going to that's gonna impact that. But we would share a lot in common with Fuller, and Fuller technically comes out of the fundamentalist tradition historically, but has now since moved away, especially since the Chicago Statement in the early 80s. What's interesting about the Wesleyan and the Methodist tradition is that this is a, this is a more British tradition, and it bypasses some of these odd American uh, things, but there are um, more conservative Methodists and more modern modernist Methodists. But you have that mix there at APU. So you have some instructors at APU that would probably be more fundamentalist, and then you have some instructors at APU that would be more closer and approaching the more modernist um, ethos. Okay, so evangelical, that's an interesting term that's falling on hard times right now. So it comes from the word related to is evangel or evangelism. It, these and evangelicals tended to be those Christians who were more in the fundamentalist tradition who put an emphasis on preaching the gospel. That they thought that you needed to have some kind of personal conversion and preaching the gospel. And that's historically where the term evangelical comes from. It's not a particular denomination. It crosses denominational lines. But what would unite these Presbyterians, these Methodists, these Baptists, these Lutherans, is that they were all evangelicals. They all believed in preaching the gospel. Okay? When you get more in the modernist tradition, there's more of an emphasis of presenting the gospel more as a social justice construct rather than as a direct presentation of salvation. One of the the defining features of the modernists was that, um, well, maybe we don't need quite so much emphasis on this whole like primitive idea of Jesus dying on the cross and dying for our sins. That's that's kind of strange. But we really like the ethical parts of what he teaches about helping the poor. So this becomes a focus for the modernists that they re-envision missionary work as being largely that of social justice 
and the, what, we, what was called 80 years ago the social gospel. You don't hear that term as much today. Whereas evangelicalism was more of a direct presentation of the gospel. Okay? Yes. So I'm so glad you brought that up because this, this is contributing to much of the polarization in our country right now is because the term evangelical has almost become this uh, very negative, derisive, almost synonymous with bigotry. Okay? And it has taken on a life of its own and its own definition within our culture. So I'm seeing an increasing number of people on Facebook in the emerging generation, in the millennials and uh, Generation Z, where they no longer like the word evangelical. They avoid this term at all costs because they don't want to tell people, an unbeliever, I'm an evangelical Christian. That's sort of like telling them, I'm a bigot. And so they, they avoid that term now. And so they, use, they prefer terms like, I'm a Christ follower. Uh, I focus on believing in Jesus. And that's the sort of thing that is seen as more culturally neutral. Yes, yeah, so this is a good, uh, maybe we could use the example of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army came into being in this magic era. And it was seen as a construct or an outworking of the Methodist. It, was, it's, it comes out of the Methodist tradition. And it is more of a, quote-unquote, social gospel slant on reaching people. And so there was more in terms of helping the poor, bringing up the disadvantaged, and, and this sort of thing. But, the, but whether there was a, a direct presentation of the gospel has been kind of eclipsed over time, and it's more of a, of a seen as strictly in social gospel terms now. Now, I do think that there have been some interesting shifts in the last 15, 20 years where evangelicals have begun to see value in social issues. And they have gone back and they're, they're saying, yeah, it is virtuous to help the poor. And yes, this can be another way of presenting the gospel. But they're really still wanting to make sure that at some point there's a direct presentation of the gospel. If I, if I clothe the naked and if I feed the hungry, but I never feed their soul, then I have left them to be hungry and naked tomorrow. Are you with me? So this is kind of the evangelical slant on the social gospel. So when we think about modernism, we could think about some of its key features, a social gospel, a rehabilitation model for salvation. And the question of whether or not you're going to hell is, is not really as important. Hell is more seen as a fundamentalist distinctive. Anyway, so this is a fairly large question. And when we think about uh, much that happens in our Christian culture, I think is still uh, largely the fruit of this era of time. Only most evangelicals in sitting in the pews don't realize it because there are certain mentalities that we have of us versus them, you know, this kind of more isolationist approach to Christian education rather than than sending Christian young people into university to be salt and light. We have much more of a kind of protectionist approach now of we want to protect our young people. And I think that 
in the beginning, I understand. I, I had a conversation with my, my grandmother before she passed away about this issue because she lived in this. This, this was her, her time period. And, and I said, you know, help me. This is what I've read in books. I said, do you think that this is an accurate depiction of what this was when you lived through it? And she said, yeah. She says, we were, we were very fearful. And we, we really made a lot of decisions based on fear. And she says, and there, you can't, and I thought this was a brilliant point for a 95-year-old woman who'd never been to seminary to make. But she says, you can't underestimate also the impact of the rise of dispensational theology during this time. Dispensational theology also rose up during this same time period, and they were like, they were like cousins or sisters growing up together. And the, the rise of dispensational theology is this idea where all of a sudden uh, the world was getting worse and worse, and we needed Jesus to rescue us. And this is where the whole idea of like the seven-year tribulation came in and the rapture and all of that theology grew up commensurate with the rise of fundamentalism. And these, also, these almost became like twin movements, mm-hmm. although there are some fundamentalists who are not dispensationalists. But my, for my grandmother to make that, that point, I thought it was interesting because she said, we were so sure that in the 20s that the world couldn't get any worse, <laughs> that we made a lot of decisions about pulling young people out of schools because we thought it can't be any worse than this. And then we left, we, left the, we left the university because we were so sure the Lord was coming back any day. And, and then there was the rise of Hitler. They lived through World War II, the Depression. All of these things were cultural factors that helped push dispensationalism and fundamentalism along. And when you get to times like we're in now, where the culture has become completely secularized. And I'm going to say something hard. Okay, are you ready? Are you sitting down? Try this on. There is a sense in which the secularization of our culture is our own fault. Because we left. We left academia. We left the conversation. We left these churches... And then we make snide comments about, oh, those are just liberals. You know, they're, you know, they're one step away from, you know, being heretics. Well, there's a reason why. It's we left. And it's taken all the, this time for Glenn Kirk, who belonged to the PCUSA, their strategy was, let's stay. We're an evangelical Presbyterian church in a modernist stream of Christianity and they said we could be salt and light in this and they stayed in it for another 80 years they just recently left a few years ago and they're in a spin-off group off the PCUSA called eco something but there is a sense in which I think that evangelicals need to be sober-minded and grown up enough to understand that we made decisions back here that we are reaping the fruit of today. And so when we left all of these institutions and we formed parallel institutions, it left a vacuum in the mainstream culture. 
And then we're angry over here. How come we're left out of the conversation? Well, we left the conversation back here. And now we're angry because we've been, we're not part of it. And so we need a strategy that includes Christian intellectuals, I think, in part, to go back into academia, into mainstream universities, and with purpose and intention in order to begin to transform that. And we see that happening in some fields. It's not useful to take an approach of we will never make inroads. We have to, and I see this all the time in my job in the scientific realm, because quite honestly, Christians have a very negative way of being when it comes to scientists. And we look at them as being a cultural enemy to be conquered. And that, I think, is the wrong mindset to have about them. Rather, we need to think of them as a mission field. They're, they're not, I don't want to be Jonah saying, Lord, why did you send me evil Nineveh? And I don't have a missionary mindset about Nineveh. I want to I think about them as a harvest field that, that I can go into. But in order to do that, I've got to have enough credibility in that area. I've got to be doing good science or I've got to be doing the good work to be able to get in there. And I'm seeing this happen, like, for example, in philosophy. About 25 years ago, a small group of Christian philosophers had this vision of what could philosophy be like. The philosophy was seen at that time as being largely atheistic field to go into. What would happen if we had Christians begin to go into the realm of philosophy? Could that change things? And it has. And that's why Talbot started the MA in philosophy and religion program at, at Talbot about 20 years ago. And they've got, gotten a few hundred people into PhD programs in philosophy and going into universities, and we are seeing some structural changes. But the problem is, I think, that many evangelicals have such a negative way of being when it comes to thinking about the university. I mean, I'm just writing words up here, and you guys are all already spitting out verbal curses about these things. Okay? You, but you got to get off that stuff. You got to get off it. You got to start thinking of this as a missionary strategy, not as a cultural enemy. And you've got you've to think about, okay, there's, there's reasons in how these things arrived the way that they did and the choices that they've made, but that, that we can still be, we can't sit in a little corner and complain about why we've been left out of a cultural conversation. Because there is a sense in which we brought this on ourselves. And the reason we've been left out is because we don't want to play the game according to the rules. And we want to have a seat at the table of ideas, but we don't want to do the hard work of actually having the intellectual credibility to be there. That's the difficulty. We've got to do better. And so we need people that can go into these things, but, you know, they're sure in their faith. They've got the fundamentals. They know what's up, but they're all also deeply gifted in being to helping us get back into these conversations at the highest level. Just standing on the periphery is not going to be a good long-term strategy. 30 seconds here, but I do want to say this. This was a glaring omission, and I was thinking of it while you were saying that, Mrs. Gady, is that 
This became the realm of reason and the mind. We're seeing as intellectuals in the modernist stream. Down here became the realm of faith and experience. So what would happen generationally is that as the younger generations came up, they were told, you know, just have personal faith. It's about your personal experience with the Lord. Keep it personal. Keep it personal because then the, it will make it um, vaccinated against reason and the mind, and no one can hijack your faith. This separation of these two things, I think, has been, it has decimated Christians for the last 50 years, especially in my generation and, and below is that these, the, the separation of these two ideas is a largely what we're seeing now in the chaos in our culture is part of that fruit. And I'm just going to have to leave it there because i got to... And where you yeah. work is exactly trying to put those two things, two together. things back together. And we're trying to be more in a, in a historical understanding of those two concepts prior to, as to how things were prior to the Civil War. So that's where, that's where we are. So the, I'm sorry, we only had one question today. That was a long answer. Was great. <laughs> so, all right. All right, Father, we just thank you for your body and how you preserve us through hard times. And even when we make miscalculations and mistakes, and I thank you for the leaders who are on the front lines and helping to call us into some different strategies because what we're doing does not seem to be working. And we ask for wisdom and grace that you would help us to engage our culture in a thoughtful way, to engage them in a loving way, and that we can begin to be salt and light again to those around us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.